Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetix has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetix provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetix.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome back, everyone, for the news of the week of December 10th. Uh, one quick announcement, go to, well, in this case, the link's kind of interesting, go.stealthbits.com slash 2019, that's 2019 trends, to register for the Stealth Bits webcast, Emerging and Continuing Trends in 2019, Privacy Regulations, Active Directory Security, and Machine Learning, for an in-depth discussion from Rod Simmons and Paul Asadorian none other than, of course. Uh, you can also view your assessment at www.stealthbits.com slash assessment. And it's their assessment, excuse me. Um, one other quick announcement I also wanted to mention as well, and I'm going to put this in the show notes. I'm actually hiring an intern for 2019. Crazy, I know, but I am. So uh, that's going to have a link in the show notes as well. That's episode 43. Go check it out if you've got, uh, you know, yourself, if you're a college student, if you've got college students as children, uh, if you know of any college students that would be interested, definitely would want to hear from them. Uh, so with that, Paul, I don't know if you want to jump to this Kubernetes thing first, but this has been like hot to trot since it started coming out. Yeah, it's garnered it's a lot awesome. of attention, Keith, um, seemingly. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, go ahead. What I was uh, interested in, uh, I mean, in addition to the, the technical details, which largely I have not read yet, but um, so I, that begs the question, like it, the, it describes it as a privilege escalation, it received a 9.8 CVSS. I would assume that there's some kind of remote thing or do I get to choose whether or not I'm authenticating it or not like I do with the Docker API? Like if you could shed some light on that, it'd be great. So uh, it, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's, it has somewhat to do with default policy setup mm. uh, for Kubernetes instances. And then the other side of it has to do with uh, authenticated mechanisms. So the default RBAC policy allows all users, both authenticated and unauthenticated, to perform discovery API calls that allow the escalation against any aggregated API service okay. configured. That in makes the cluster. sense. Yeah. So similar to the That's Docker why. API, like by default, unless you do some config, which it says right in the log entries for Docker, like if you don't set the, you know, if you're putting this on the internet and you're exposing it and you haven't done dash dash TLS verify you don't know what you're doing or something. Is this yeah. something about like, you don't know what you're doing or make sure you know what you're doing. Uh, apparently I didn't know what I was doing as you know, we had an incident regarding that. And now back to the story, it sounds like Kubernetes is the same thing that when you put up a Kubernetes instance, the API is open to the internet. Effectively. Right. And especially if it's an instance that isn't behind your firewall, for example, you don't have right. it localized to your, to your VPN or, or what have you, right? So the other thing about this as well is the pod exec slash attach slash port forward permissions 
are included in the same admin edit RBAC roles intended for namespace constrained users. So now it's like, okay, the same permissions for the functionality are extended like out into the segmented in any it, way. Yeah. And that's what Larry was describing on last Thursday was it uh, is implicit trust that if you can call those things in Kubernetes, it essentially means you can take action on containers that are being managed by Kubernetes. Yep. Okay. Okay. I so get the, the 9.8 now. Yeah, it was, it's not great. And in fact, the, the thing that's happening as a result of this is, and I believe it actually now there's a, a POC out there that's like in the wild works perfectly um, against this. So if you've, if you've got Kubernetes clusters out there somewhere, you probably have been owned already. Um, yeah, so probably yeah, means you've is, got a rogue container that's mining cryptocurrency, which is the, the trend these days. Most likely, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the nice thing is, thankfully, to some degree, these things are you know generally segmented from the rest of your network, but there's probably a bunch of small startups somewhere that don't necessarily have it segmented. And well, I mean, if you're hosting kind of... if you're hosting in any of the cloud providers, then True. it could be very well exposed to the internet, right? I mean, that was right. the reason why we pushed up to the cloud was we were tired of hardware failing and eventually had a, a massive hardware failure. And I'm like, you know what? It's just going to live in the cloud because we can't do this. And a lot of enterprises and businesses are making those decisions, but your controls still need to be uh, scrutinized when you're in the cloud versus locally, right? And I think it's it's easy to do that. Also, if you've got a CI CD pipeline, it likely is talking to the Kubernetes API. Like my use case was so Jenkins could do stuff right and but those have to be authenticated so there's really kind of two issues you need to to look at one is uh exposure of those apis who can access them like physically by ip address right and then also what type of authentication are you putting in and when you put in authentication you know make sure you're not breaking your ci cd pipeline honestly with the whole rise of you know continuous integration and continuous delivery mm -hmm. especially coinciding with the devops movement where it's it's kind of you know single piece flow one team controls everything it makes me wonder if the design of some of these tools as built by developers you know no yep. no um, no flaws against them per se but i feel like a lot of the inherent knowledge of the sysadmin world which by the way is being replaced by the cloud and yep. devops um, it has been somewhat lost. And as a result of it, I think that that's probably why we're seeing some of these vulnerabilities be what they are is nobody stopped to think about, you know, simply either role-based access control or um, even things like just, you know, network segmentation problems that are going to exist with, with these sorts of tools. Well, yeah, and I, I, I think, know. well, and I think Linux and Windows, it took them many years to learn this lesson. I remember when I first started doing Linux, you know, you'd put up a Red Hat Linux 5.2. I remember the, the version number. And when you put that up, like the FTP server was open to the world by default. And people were right. putting them on the internet. And then you'd end up with wares, take everyone back in time, on your Red Hat. It was actually a good way to get free content, <laughs> if you think about it. But people put pirated content and software on your systems and use that to uh, distribute it. Windows obviously had the same thing in the early 2000s when all these worms were running around because of default settings. It took both the open source and Linux community and Microsoft some time to educate their user base and reach that level of maturity where they're like, look, the FTP server is not turned on by default. You got to go enable it if you want that. Microsoft did the same thing with the firewall. It, it comes on by default now, right? And I think that yeah. uh, the container world is going to have to learn the same 
Elastic containers and cloud, if you look at S3, well, largely Amazon has tried to tackle the S3 problem and make it really hard for you to expose your S3 buckets to the internet. Um, and uh, we've got now this problem with containers, right? And I think that uh, Kubernetes and Docker and other engines are probably going to take some time to catch up and realize that, yes, we understand it's complicated to set these things up, but if we don't apply some controls and turn things off by default, it's going to be a bad scene. And that's why you're seeing the rise in people taking advantage of these. And it's been a slow growth over the year. When I first looked at it in like April of this year, when we were a victim of it, uh, very few people like AquaCycle was like the only one that had a blog on it, right? Now everyone has blog articles. You can find them on ZDNet and all these other things. And because I think it's a trend, we're not going to see a downward uh, trend there until these things are turned off by default, in my opinion. Agreed, agreed. And by the way, I always just call it Juarez. I was that kid that was like, Get Juarez. Juarez. Yeah, I think I probably <laughs> called it that in, in the beginning too until someone used Wares. I'm like, yeah, that, that makes more sense, I think. I don't know. Yep, same. Sounds I think better, I did, right? I was listening yeah. to Paul Security Weekly at one point when you did the interview with uh, the folks from The Loft and you guys called it Wares. And I was like, ah, that's how you pronounce it. There you go. <laughs> Uh, Chris, I don't know if you wanted to weigh in on this at all, especially, again, coming from the Pentester background. I imagine you'd be out there pillaging things like this left and right if you had the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I'd be thrilled to get something like this in, in scope. Right. Right, yeah. And unfortunately, most of the time, these things are in production environments somewhere, and they're never in scope, like ever. Because you mess with this, you mess with an entire company's build pipeline, and just everybody gets mad. Um, so moving on, though, Paul, I did want to talk a little bit about that 11-year-old um, Firefox bug. I thought that this was interesting because effectively, it's just really bad design that, uh, and there was, since uh, this has come out, seven different times where this has been reported mm -hmm. and uh, has yet to go uh, and be fixed. So basically, what ends up happening is uh, back in April of 2007, 11 years ago, a bug was uh, reported to Firefox whereby an embedded iframe inside the source code uh, can make HTTP authentication requests on another domain, right? So it's effectively kind of like cross-site request forgery, sort of, but in reverse, like it's trying to have Is it a more like a same origin policy bypass? Yeah, sort of, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if they're, if they're doing the iframe thing, for sure. Like yep. that's, that's definitely what it is. In this case, it's effectively someone trying to steal authentication credentials for the site, by requesting credentials and sending them to another site, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and let, and is, so I'm sorry, Keith, this is a vulnerability that they've like tried to fix, but then failed and tried to fix and failed? Or is this something that's been in 11 years and this is the first time they're trying to address it? Well, so in this case, it, basically they've called out here that it still hasn't really been fixed. Okay. Uh, and so they're just basically being taken to task. It's like, okay, ZDNet, uh, specifically uh, Ketalin Kimpanyu, uh, called them out as basically saying, hey, look, this still exists. It's exists now in like seven different versions of, or seven different times that it's been called out as being a bug that has gone unfixed for any reason that mm -hmm. you know can't be de de defined. Um, and uh, what happens though is unlike other browsers, which actually have a better way of dealing with this, you press escape to exit, say, a full screen that has this uh, kind of prompt on it. And what ends up happening is the button closes and it just reopens. Like it, it, effectively, you can't you can't cause it to close because it, it doesn't have any sort of delay or anything when you close the, the iframe. And so there have been better ways of dealing with this in, say, Edge, where there's a delay between the authentication modals uh, being you know popped up, so you have a time to now go and close the tab that's presenting this 
uh, what is effectively trying to you know do credential theft from you. Uh, whereas in Chrome, the dialogue window is actually moved from the browser window level at each tab's individual level. Mm -hmm. So that means that as they're trying to do this kind of aggressive login dialogue, you can just go close the tab. <laughs> like you didn't even have to worry about it. Right. So more or less what has happened here is they just, it's bad design, right? Like you can't, you, you can continually call this authentication modal uh, inside of the iframe and you constantly just kind of are spinning it off. And so you can never actually go and close the tab inside of Firefox. So in some ways it could be considered like a denial of service unless someone just totally shuts down Firefox, like all, all tabs closed mm -hmm. at once. So um, I thought this was just kind of funny because it's like, okay, this has been called out a number of times now and granted, Firefox is, you know, Mozilla is doing this kind of, uh, not for free per se. I'm sure they've got some agreements with ad agencies or, or something related to searches. But, um, but even still, it's like, okay, this is this has been a problem that just hasn't been fixed by any of the open source community, and it's existed for 11 years. So I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? I mean, it's been out there for a while. Uh, why why haven't they fixed this yet? Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things where, you know, we we all want to believe that open source software is going to just automatically be more secure because, you know, all the eyes on it and that kind of thing. But uh, at the end of the day, like, um, what was it, OpenSSL? Uh, just people weren't, there, there, there's not enough hands in there, right? That's true. Everybody can look, but if, if nobody you know, st steps up and takes some action, it's just everybody's watching this bug exist and continue to exist. It's a really good point, Chris. And with that, I guess we'll move on to uh, kind of the next story. One that I really wanted to talk about, Paul, was under the uh, food for thought section, uh, specifically the rise of Microsoft Visual Studio Code. Uh, this article has lots and lots of kind of metrics that were gathered. Um, but what was nice is it's based on uh, TripleByte's interview process for hundreds of engineers uh, that, they, that they've worked with. So TripleByte is a company that uh, works with a number of developers to build software. And they, as they go through the interviews, they've been tracking, you know, some of their interview questions and their metrics. And what stood out to them uh, as very interesting, at least over the last year, was Visual Studio Code made up something like 17% of the developers that they talked to preferred to use that. The next closest being Sublime Text at about 12%, IntelliJ at about 11 and then Vim at about 10%. So... Uh, what I found really interesting, though, is that Visual Studio Code is very new. And as they kind of dive through the metrics, they found that it's it's steeply starting to take over a lot of the market share. Um, so I know that, Chris, you said you use Nano. I don't know if you've ever checked out Visual Studio Code, but I thought that this was uh, kind of an interesting deep dive into studying uh, both developer habits as they've been interviewing them, but also uh, a little bit more for the IDE itself. I don't know if you guys have any comments. Yeah, I, I think, you know, like I've said, if I was a full-time software developer, I'd probably force myself to switch to something like VS Code just because of the, for the features, right? You're always going to get those hardcore people that are just stuck on Vim like me and aren't going to give it up. Uh, and VS Code, I have played around with the emulation, excuse me, that they have for Vim. I don't know. It just, it still feels artificial, I think, uh, for a lot of folks, so... It's true. And what I found also really interesting about this uh, in terms of kind of the metrics, though, is in terms of the people that they hired, right? So the people that made it through the interview and actually got an offer, something like 54% uh, of those that they hired actually used Emacs. Ooh. And I was a little bit like I was interested in that because then also the next highest one at uh, close to 24% was Vim. 
And I was like, okay, so you're, you know, you're interviewing all of these developer candidates and the two top, uh, basically, you know, IDEs that come out of this are Emacs and Vim. Mm -hmm. It's like, what, what year are we in again? Um, and what they actually did kind of go through in, in some of the conclusions that they made in, in diving deeper into that was they started talking about, you know, like, well, what, which languages did these developers use? Because maybe that was uh, part of the reasons that they were using Vim and Emacs. And then the next one, the third one down being Visual Studio Code. Interestingly, also, by the way, Emacs and Vim are like, you know, 30 plus years old. Visual Studio Code is like, I don't know, maybe two at But most. now, would you consider the difference between Vim and Emacs being editors and Visual Studio Code being more like an IDE? So it's actually, um, it, it's almost that the reason Visual Studio Code comes in third on the list of mm -hmm. like nine editors uh, is because of the fact that it's more like an editor and less like an IDE Interesting. Is, is actually why. Uh, in fact, when uh, there, there was some talks that I was listening to on Visual Studio Code that talks about the whole dichotomy of IDE versus editor, right? Mm. Like you know, what do you really need and what do you really want? Uh, in Visual Studio Code, while it has plugins that make it closer to being an IDE, sure. yep. at its base level, it's actually much more like an editor. Like okay. it's on that side of the spectrum. So it's like an editor after, with some IDE kind of features. Functions. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, so like IntelliSense, right? So like making sure that it, it does all the nice things with uh, putting your curly braces on the line as you're writing it, closing it appropriately for you, uh, adding spaces around your parentheses if you want those, things like that. Yeah, and, so, it, and that, was, that was, I think my point was it, newer programmers that haven't really worked as full-time software developers probably are using editors, right? I think the more senior developer you get that are developing for enterprises or for software companies, probably more likely to use an IDE because they have to, right? And I think many programmers go through that transition of now I got to use whatever you know IDE is available to me when I go work for a company where I'm developing full time versus maybe just part time or as a student or while you're learning, it's mostly editors. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. In fact, it bears out in some of the, the data that they show here. So those that have been developing for, say, one to three years um, or, you know, say anywhere from zero years to maybe three to five years are mostly using Visual Studio Code. Whereas if you actually look at the people that have eight plus years of development experience, uh, they're kind of a mix between IntelliJ. Uh, there's also Visual Studio in there, some Visual Studio Code and Vim. Uh, but then they have other listed. So maybe that's Nano, for example. Well, Who knows? And also, I think there's a huge difference between an interpreted language and a compiled language. In a oh, for sure. compiled yeah. language, you're, you're going to get more mileage out of an IDE because as you code, you can compile your stuff in the background and just present that to you in the interface, right? Whereas if you're not and you're in a compiled language, those are all manual steps. I mean, unless you've scripted something inside of your editor, right? Right, right, exactly. The other interesting thing that I, I took away from this as well, though, is looking at the languages that they were writing in. The ones that come out on top are Go with 68%, mm. uh, followed by Ruby at 37 and then Python at about 14.5. So that that was really interesting to me as well because they were looking at you know languages that people were strong at as they were hiring them. Now, of course, that could be kind of swayed based on the kind of developers they were hiring exactly. for different projects. But right. um and they also do say at the very bottom, you know, take this all with a grain of salt because it's just based on, on kind of their observations. But mm -hmm. um, Go is definitely one of those languages as I talk to folks like Zane Lackey or others, uh, James Wicket, who uh, they, they point to it and say, this is a really awesome language. Like it's powerful and it's compilable uh, and it's fast. It's just straight fast.
So yeah, I'll be learning it in 2019. I'll just say that much. So sweet. Um, I don't know where you guys want to go next. We got a, a couple other stories here that we can cover. I know that um, we got some some states that are joining together for a HIPAA lawsuit. Uh, we also have uh, data being scraped or WordPress bots attacking other WordPress instances. I don't know. What do you guys want to go to? I, yeah, let's talk about the scraper one. Uh, what is this all? Oh, so you said that there's somehow there ended up a, a MongoDB database that had a bunch of data. And no, one know, no one knows where it came from or where it was scraped yeah. from. Is that... Yeah, so this this article basically um, talks through, and this is going to be, let's just make sure you cite this here appropriately. So this was story number two under If You Build It, They Will Come. A Mongo D, uh, MongoDB database or Mongo database uh, was exposed to the internet publicly which with what appeared to be LinkedIn data mm. uh, ex- uh, discovered back on October 5th. It had something like 66 million unique records uh, with different uh, sort of, you know, bits of data uh, mixed in there appropriately. Now, it, it included things like, you know, full name, personal or professional email, their location details, skills, employment history, etc. cetera, uh, presumed to be taken from LinkedIn, not necessarily, you know, confirmed as taken by LinkedIn. Uh, and then for that, it was actually, it's, it's hosted by, um, or at least it appears to be hosted on a bulletproof kind of hoster, so they can't actually, like, mm-hmm. figure out where this is all going to. Um, but what's interesting about this is they actually talked about uh, whether or not web scraping is legal, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, for Chris or myself, if we're going out and we're doing web scraping as part of an assessment, uh, depending on, you know, if we're authorized, of course, but even still, data scraping without first obtaining the prior individual's written consent or regarding the terms of service is actually, as cited in this article anyway, I'm not a lawyer, uh, is cited as being definitively illegal, which I thought was interesting because they also kind of correlate back to the fact that if the data is displayed on a website meant for public consumption, it's legal to copy the information to a file on your personal computer, but not uh, to be used in a way that's not in the best interest of the owner. So yeah, I that think, was something that I found interesting. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, also you know, knowing what I know about bot detection, if in your scraping you've got some code that purposely evades the bot detection that would then also make you uh, in violation of their terms of service that could probably also get you uh, in trouble. And, and I know that it goes through many fits and starts, but uh, you know, the information that's indexed by search engines that you can glean from having a Bing or Google API key uh, might be in scope because it's already been essentially scraped by the search engine. But if, for example, you're going to LinkedIn directly, you're bypassing their bot detection. In other words, they've got code that's looking for, or some kind of system, likely, that's looking for uh, a bot versus a human and not to basically one thing to prevent against is scraping. Uh, if you're bypassing that, could probably could get you in some trouble, depending on, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I would say that's probably not going to weigh in your favor uh, if a lawsuit is brought against you. Right. And, and it makes you wonder as well as these things are being aggregated by um, by what appears to be some sort of attacker, um, you know, how, why these these are, have been aggregated or how these have been able to be aggregated, but also um, concerns around, hey, if this is all being aggregated from LinkedIn, you know, shouldn't they be doing something about this? Right. So I, I wonder if we'll hear any sort of, um, you know, updates from LinkedIn security on, oh, hey, we've recently improved our bot detection mechanisms for scraping prevention who knew mm-hmm. so 
that that is probably something I, I look forward to seeing in early 2019. Chris, I don't know if you have anything to add on this as well, uh, especially again given your day to day of hacking companies. If uh, if you ever have the opportunity to do this sort of thing for building password lists, for example. Yeah, it's a really tough thing. I mean, obviously anything that the, that the company owns, you're going to get express written permission to uh, to play around with. But when it comes to things like LinkedIn, I mean, if you want to do password spraying, for example, you, you want a good long list of usernames. But but if it's against LinkedIn's terms of service to scrape that kind of thing, then are we running afoul of that? And uh, yeah, also not a lawyer. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, so uh, with that, I actually wanted to turn to the learning and tools section because I've been a little bit negligent with it lately and I thought that you folks would actually enjoy this. So uh, there were three learning and tools that I highlighted uh, this time around. One is called RootMe. Uh, so it's root-me.org. It's meant for um, like on anything that's on like the VulnHub or um, you know, like vulnerable uh, just tools or vulnerable attack surfaces. So rather than actually needing to set it up in your own lab, it's uh, free to sign up uh, for individuals to actually play with virtual environments and challenges that they also have. So again, after you go back and do your holiday hack challenge this year, if you find it fun and you need more team building exercises, this is a, a great way to stand you know, things up that are virtualized in a way that you don't have to worry about the environment or your own lab. Uh, so I thought that that was cool. And the logo looks really familiar. I don't know um, if it's, you know, like who it was actually by as a company, but it's just root-me.org. Um, so that's something that I have to investigate to see if it was a company that I'm familiar with because it doesn't have the actual company name in there. Um, another one that I really liked, Paul, and I think you'll enjoy this, is the big list of naughty strings. I thought uh, we so covered, see, now I thought we covered this before. So we might have, I wanted to highlight it again just because mm -hmm. I, I thought it was just really great for, uh, you know, something to throw into your pipeline. I know we definitely had it in the learning and tools uh, show notes. I just don't necessarily remember um, actually talking about it, but it's it's just cool. So if you if we have well, talked yeah, about and, it, uh, also with the you know challenges, the holiday hack challenge we mentioned, and uh, the other challenges that you would listen on there from Root Me, uh, probably pretty timely, right? To have that list yeah. that you might want to fuzz some things with. So. Yep, that's for sure. That was actually where my mind was going was, hey, you might want to have some naughty strings mm -hmm. sticking around for, you know, I don't know, anything that's web app related that's part of a so challenge that you're would doing. would we then consider this a naughty list then, Keith? Yes, this is in fact a naughty okay, list. Paul. just checking. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and thankfully, I don't think you or I are on it this year. Uh, or at least yes. I know I'm not, uh, but I can't speak for you, Paul, And that so. is our punny holiday humor. <laughs> it is indeed. It's terrible. Um, the last thing I just wanted to talk about as well, which uh, I, I know that this is a cool project I've known Will uh, for for some time, uh, is the Serpico project. So as you're looking at a you know a tool to write up your notes or your findings as you're building them for the holiday hack challenge, uh, it's always good to have a, a useful tool to kind of aggregate all of that. And in some cases, also produce a nice looking report, which I know that you're able to do with the holiday hack challenge. So the Serpico project or the simple report writing and collaboration tool uh, is just a, a pretty awesome tool to do that. It is free, open source, runs on Kali, Ubuntu, Debian, OSX, and Windows, and has a, a Docker container as well. Uh, so definitely check that out as it's a, just a cool tool. Uh, to go in and build some reports that actually look pretty nice on the output of it as well. So wanted to highlight that for those uh, those that have to do some report writing this holiday season, as I know you know some of us actually have to do. Uh, but with that, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get commitment, stay classy.